to Season 6 of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so glad that you joined me today. Before we get started with this week's interview, I wanted to say a quick thank you to all those that have subscribed, listened to and shared the episodes. If you get a chance, please take a few minutes to leave a review and comment on iTunes. It will help get the episodes to as many teachers as possible. Ryan Estrelado is a writer, educator, and data scientist. Ryan tells inspiring stories about the reality of educational work, ranging from overcoming a fear of data to finding a creative practice in the workplace. In this wide-ranging interview, we talked about if data in schools even matters, why we need to make more meaningful use of data, how to rethink data in schools, and how to measure what matters most. Ryan was a wonderful, insightful, and fascinating guest. I hope that you get as much out of this interview as I did. Just a quick note, at the time of recording, Ryan's latest book, the K-12 Educator's Data Guidebook, Reimagining Practical Data Use in Schools, was only available for pre-order. You can now order it through the links on his website. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for uh, for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me, Matthew. I'm super excited about this. Yeah, whereabouts are you phoning in from? What part of the world? I am in San Diego, California, in the United States. Lovely, and I can see a, a Liverpool uh, football scarf in the background. You're a, a big fan, I take it. I am. I am. Been a Liverpool supporter for a lot of years. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you, like. Uh, the way that I remember how long I've been a Liverpool supporter is uh, I started this, the year that I watched my first season, Liverpool season, was the same year that I started as a school psychologist. So that was in 2002. Fantastic. So uh, you've been a, so you're a, a diehard Liverpool fan now? I am, indeed. Fantastic. Well, uh, what is your, probably the most important question uh, for our interview, what is your coffee order? Okay. Uh I don't know if this is cheating, but I kind of have two answers. Like my daily routine is I get up in the morning and I, and I, uh, you know, I walk my dog, I make some black coffee and, uh, and I write and that's normally what I do, but, uh, there is a spot, um, down the road from where I live. And it is, uh, like a, is, is, they call themselves a micro, uh, roaster, like this small kind of coffee company. They're called Mostra Coffee, M-O-S-T-R-A, and they have really fancy coffee. So when I want to indulge, they have something called a campfire latte, which is exactly the way it sounds. You know, it's like a latte. It's got the espresso and the milk in it, but then it's got like graham crackers and cinnamon and some chocolate in it. So it smells like s'mores. Do, do, y'all, have, do y'all think of, I'm sorry for my ignorance. I should probably uh, apologize ahead of time because I don't know what y'all have in Australia. I, uh, I, I don't know. I have heard the word small. My understanding is that it's two biscuits with a marshmallow. Is that That's correct? It. Well, you're missing okay. a key ingredient. Okay. The chocolate. There's like a little chocolate bar in between there and you heat it over the fire. And so what happens is like the graham crackers kind of toast up a little bit. 
and the marshmallows just kind of melt as you know with the chocolate and it sort of mixed up so you eat it like a little sandwich so do you so this is fascinating so as do you buy the small or do you construct the small you construct it yeah if we're talking about the literal s'more and not the mostra coffee drink we they, you buy the ingredients so if you go camping you know you buy all these things and you you know you eat your dinner when you're camping and then like you know, everybody as a kid who went camping here in the United States, like the most exciting part is you would then break out all the ingredients and usually have like, kind of like skewer all the parts or the like the marshmallow, I'm trying to remember how I did it, through a little skewer and then you kind of heat that up, it gets really hot and then you sandwich that between the two graham crackers and you put the chocolate in there and the heat melts it. It's amazing. That sounds incredible. We, uh, we're not as fancy as you guys. Uh, <laughs> over in Australia, we just get a marshmallow and put it on a stick. And that's it. But, uh, we, yeah. we also can't, we, we call them, um, uh, uh, well, obviously, obviously campfires. We also can't have a lot of those, actually, especially, especially during summer because of our bushfires. So quite often we're not allowed to uh, yeah. light campfires or we're not allowed to make these big fires because of uh, because obviously how uh, destructive some of the bushfires can be over in Australia and I, yeah. I'm aware that uh, uh, you guys as well so you probably have to be pretty careful about that. Totally yeah well so I should say um, most of the times that we have s'mores we are like making them over the stove in the kitchen <laughs> like we're not actually camping. <laughs> yeah uh, fair enough it, it does sound extreme to uh, every time you feel like a s'more that you've You've got to go and set up a tent and a fire and uh, That's right. look. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely. Uh, it'll be. Uh, it'll be worth. Um, uh, worth investigating s'mores more. So I'll, mm-hmm. I'll see if I can uh, make some over here and, and keep you updated. That was look, that was a wonderful. That was a wonderful sidetrack. I think that's really uh, really important. Um, just wondering, Ryan, um, if you could have a dinner party with anybody, uh, who would be there? Okay, uh, I was thinking about this question. I've got two. Uh, I am a big fan of The Clash. Uh, I love Joe Strummer as a person, to rest in peace, Joe Strummer. My uh, son's, my younger son's middle name is Strummer. That's how much, uh, you know, how much I love Joe Strummer. So I would definitely would like to have dinner with him. I've got so many questions for him. Uh, and then the other is uh, Daniel Kahneman, author, uh, award-winning, uh, Nobel Prize-winning uh, psychologist Daniel Kahneman and uh, lots of questions for him about thinking and cognitive biases that's the other person I would have plus I would love to hear what they would talk about to each other I think that would be really fun too yeah so why uh why Daniel Kahneman what 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 some of the uh the findings of his work and, and and why does he get a seat at the table yeah so Daniel Daniel Kahneman is uh I don't think I'm fairly certain I'm not the first to call him this, but he's, he's thought of as like the godfather of cognitive biases, which of course, you know, means the predictable pattern of errors that we just tend to make as human beings. Confirmation bias is like the one you hear about the most. You know, we tend to look for evidence that only evidence that supports what we want to believe is true. You know, none of this stuff makes us bad people. It's just kind of the way our brains are wired. And he, uh, he did a lot of work studying that with um with his uh research partner uh amos tversky and they uh, he wrote a book daniel kahneman wrote a book called thinking fast and slow yeah and um i have you know i think as a 
I don't know. I don't know if I know how to unpack all of why this is, but but I had noticed like as a younger person and then growing up into adulthood that like I was prone to a lot of cognitive kinds of errors that as a younger kid, very frustrating for me. So I think what's really attractive to me about Daniel Kahneman's work is that there is a framework that describes why we make these kinds of mistakes. Um, and I'll say maybe one more thing about him, which is uh, there's a great book I think it's called The Undoing Project, which is about his personal relationship with uh, uh, Amos Tversky. And um, you really yeah. get to see his humanity there. And I found it quite a uh, heartwarming and touching and emotional book for me to read. And so there's that side of him that I would love to see more of. Fantastic. That sounds wonderful. And while we are on, quite possibly one of my favorite topics, which is books. Uh, yeah. Why is uh, Bird by Bird such an important book to you? Oh, man. You know, we were we were getting warmed up talking, and uh, I was telling you how impressed I was with your podcast release schedule, the consistency. And I think Bird by Bird by Annie Lamott is a manual for that kind of living and creative work. It's just the, the title comes from the, the story that she tells about her father helping her brother who was uh, really stressed out about a report that he had to do on a bunch of birds. He had waited to the last minute and uh, their father told them, the way that you get this done is you just start the report and you just do it bird by bird, bird. until it's done. And that's one of the premises of her of the book, Bird by Bird, which has been super uh, formative for me as a creator and as a writer, this idea of like, look, we can trick ourselves into not starting work, but really the work itself basically is just getting started and everything kind of takes care of itself. And uh, I really, it's, it's really changed the way I think about my writing as a routine and as a practice. Wow. Uh, the reason why I ask is uh, I, I have not uh, read that book. Um, but I need to get my act together and read it. And it's by far my wife's, one of my wife's favorite books. Oh, she is a, a writer and it is one of the books that she uh, said has really transformed her creative process. So I think, oh, I, love that. I think I need to, I think I need to read it. I, I, really I highly recommend it. Would I have, I picked a quote out for you. Would you, do you want to hear it? I would love that. Okay. She tells the story about how um, upset she was that she wasn't invited to an event. And, uh, and this part of the book is all about how she learns that her creative process will only be successful if, if uh, she herself um, is together on the inside and that her creative process is not where she seeks her happiness. So her, uh, her uh, quote says, hours later, I remembered that if I wasn't enough before being asked to participate in this prestigious event, then participating wasn't going to make me enough. Being enough was going to have to be an inside job. And I go back to this quote uh, very often when I, when I write, because I'm, you know how that is with the, being a creator. Sometimes you get wrapped up in whether or not your stuff is good enough. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's the paradox of it, is if you're good enough already, your stuff is going to be fine. Yeah, yeah. And we talked about, um, just before we hit record, the the tension between quality and quantity and, and for many years one of the reasons why I didn't start these conversations with people was because I wanted it to be perfect and then I realized that perfection is a, a, a 
probably the worst form of procrastination. So you just to get started and get over yourself and realize that uh, people aren't as interested in you as you may think. And so they just, uh, yeah, so just go ahead and do it. And I think it's, yeah. it, it's really important. And I think my, uh, one of my um, mantras, if you like, is that like, what's the thing that I'm going to be grateful that I started 12 months from now. And I think like I, we do lots of busy work, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a teacher, you've worked as a psychologist, you're an author. And I think there's a lot of things that are, that take up our time, but um, we also want to produce something that outlasts us, I think. And it's that sort of tension, I think, between uh, waiting for perfection and all the ducks to line up and, and just, and just getting started. And I, I don't know where this is from, but I've heard the quote that if you're not embarrassed by your first draft, then you waited too long. Um, and yeah. so uh, I look back on yeah. the entire first season of this podcast and while the guests were phenomenal and I'm incredibly grateful for that, I'm pretty embarrassed about my interviewing style, the audio quality, all of that kind of stuff, but no one's ever said anything. So I think yeah. you just need to get started. Yeah. yeah. And it's it really, might've been it, uh, necessary. It might've been the necessary step to get you to uh, where you are. Yeah, yeah, I, it, I completely agree. Exactly. Um, data, a bit of a slightly... Uh, a different topic, but you've just written a book called the K to 12 educators data guidebook. Uh-huh. Now that, that is a mouthful. And why are you on a, a mission to, to redefine how we see data and how we use data? Cause traditionally I, I think most would agree it has been quite dry. Yeah. So why, why do you want to bring life back into the old thing? Oh yeah. You know, I think you're being, I think you're being generous about it. I think at best it's been dry in some cases, it's been a totally negative experience for some teachers in, in uh, at least in the United States, but I suspect other, um, other places too. I had this conversation with, uh, with somebody that uh, is a popular uh, social media influencer, also happens to be a teacher, and was talking to her about, um, uh, about the book. And she goes, boy, uh, she goes, how is your social media going? And, and, and I was telling her like, well, it's fine but it's not like yours because hers is like humongous. Uh, and I was telling her, you know, it's kind of hard to build up a following around this topic that I'm writing. And she goes, well, what do you expect? You're writing about the thing that everybody hates. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> very lovely person. I knew what she was trying to say, which is the challenge that I'm up against here is a, this thing that I enjoy. It's not a thing that everybody enjoys. And so, um, you know, I started uh, as a research for the book talking to as many educators as I can about what this experience has been like uh, for, for them using data. And very often they would say things like, are you sure you want to talk to me about this? Because uh, I'm not really a data person. And my response is always, that's exactly why I want to talk to you about this. And what I learned um, is uh, while I set out to basically write a how-to manual for using data, um, it still is a how-to manual, but it ended up uh, to my surprise, being a collection of stories from educators about what this experience has been like, and not just the successful stuff. A lot of the stuff that is very surprisingly, I think what would be surprising to a lot of us, is uh, carries with it some pretty intense emotions. It's not something we normally think about with data, but like that has that, been my experience and finding as I talk to all these people. Wow, that it's so interesting, and and the, we couldn't possibly do your your work 
the justice it deserves in, in this short discussion, but there are so many points I, I want to draw out of your book. And uh, firstly, can I just apologize to my American audience? I uh, do say data. I know that's very different to uh, what you hear. Uh, and also uh, on behalf of Ryan, we'll apologize to the Australian author uh, audience because he says data. So we'll, we'll, we'll meet in the middle um, somehow, but uh, it's, it's so important. And you talk so much about, um, uh, about crafting a story um, mm -hmm. around data and, and why is that so important and how do we begin to um, personalize this? Um, how do we begin to personalize this more? Yeah, I'll talk just kind of broadly about that first and then I'll, you know, I'll give, I'll give like a little practical tip. Um, you know, I learned, I, I have not been a story person all, all my life. In fact, for a long time, uh, I resisted people's recommendation that I include more story in my writing and the way that I did my work because I thought that stories, you know, my perception was that stories were manipulative. They tried to get you to think and feel things that you weren't originally. Uh, you know, this is a very like strictly quantitative kind of, you know, point of view. And what I learned at, after a while is that was my own story mm. about stories. I know that's meta, but that's kind of yeah, what turned yeah. me on to the idea was like, well, it's only like that if I believe it is in my head. And then it kind of led to this question of, okay, well, so then what are the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are in relation to data, how we use it, what it means? What are the things that have experiences that we've had in education that have formed what we believe about data? There's a really great study uh, about data visualization where they put, um, the researchers put data visualizations in front of a bunch of people and then they had them journal about their emotions and um, as they experience it. And it's very clear from the findings in, in, in the, in, in the uh, study that this is a very emotional process for all kinds of reasons. Everything from like being upset by the findings in the data to being upset and ashamed of themselves for not being able to understand what the data said, all kinds of feelings, right? And, you know, I really think that the feelings that I have about using data in schools and the feelings that a lot of other educators have about using data in schools are driven by the stories that we've, we've crafted and have begun to believe. Not that that's any of our fault. This is sort of what I've, you know, what I've uh, heard somebody call an innocent error. It's a thing that happened to us. You know, somebody beat us up with data one day and all of a sudden it became a thing that we avoided. So I introduced that idea in the book as a way to say like that story is pliable. We can create new experiences that, that give us a different story that can, can make us more productive. The practical side of that is, um, is everybody's story is individual. Their experience in education is, is individual. And, and, and in order to make data mean something, um, we have to map our use of it to our personal experience. And so, you know, in the book, uh, I talk about taking some time to find, to really define what your job duties are. What are the things that are important to you when you serve kids? And then, and then like mapping that to important decisions. And then, only then, finding the data that helps you with those decisions. So that's a real kind of practical way to sort of apply this story building element thought of it from that point of view until I read your book because I'd always all of these sort of the responses that I've had to data have been pretty negative like it's yeah. sort of dry and boring and they've sort of reinforced 
a perception that I had. And after reading your work, I, I sort of really started to find some of the positive implement, imp, implications of data, which is really wonderful. And I, I'm just really conscious uh, uh, as well, Ryan, of how do we use, we talked before about um, challenging that sort of cognitive bias. And as we, as we approach data and data sets, um, how do we um, how do we make sure that we're not slipping into that cognitive bias and make sure that we're actually pro approaching it with an open mind? And I'm aware that I just said data, um, so your uh, your accent is uh, infiltrating me all the way over in Australia. But uh, what are your thoughts on um, some of those uh, ways that we can sort of counteract that cognitive bias when it comes to data? Yeah, we were talking a little bit about this uh, this earlier while we were warming up. I love the topic of cognitive biases, uh, this idea that we all have, as human beings, we're all prone to very predictable ki kinds of errors, like, you know, one, one of those being, you know, con confirmation biases, one that's talked about a lot, the tendency to look, you know, for, for uh, evidence that supports our beliefs, mm -hmm. um, or, you know, what we want to believe is true. And, um, I really love that from an interpersonal, like an, an sort of a inner life kind of point of view, because it requires some self-awareness and some yeah. humility to Absolutely. be constantly asking myself, is that really true? Is that thing that I believe really true? And it's, it's a, it's a habit that has served me really well. And uh, you know what, the, the other side of that coin is also true when I am not conscious of that habit, I find myself making all kinds of mistakes. And I think, you know, once you get into the habit, my experience has been at once I got into the habit of constantly questioning um, myself, not in a way that sort of uh, is shameful, but more of a curiosity kind of thing. Um, I started to crave ways to answer those questions. And some of those are purely intuitive. Some yeah. uh, Another way to answer those questions, I surround myself with people who are just as curious. And I very often will start conversations like, Hey, let me run something by you. Just one, know what you think about this. That's yeah. a kind of a check on a cognitive bias. Yeah. And then there's there's data. You know, you sort of look. It, it does the evidence suggest that what I believe is true is actually true? And uh, it can act as a pretty decent check for that. I think it's fantastic. And just out of interest, is there something that you have uh, recently changed your mind about? Um, something, an assumption that you have had challenged, and now you maybe take a different approach, a different view? Yeah. Uh, a few things. A few things. Uh, yeah, a few, a few right. things. I'm, as I'm trying to pick, I won't go through go through all of them. I talked about well, stories was one. You know, the role of stories in work is something that uh, you know I think a few years ago would have been that would have been something I would not have uh, cultivated as like a um, a tool in in yeah. in my work. Um, I also think the other thing is uh, the involvement of, of my audience in the creation of my work. I've never been against that idea, but, but I've only recently learned just how essential that is to anything that I create. And I can tell you what I mean by that is basically um, having the humility to acknowledge that I, the people that I'm trying to speak to in my writing, I haven't lived their lives. And that there is, um, there is value in having them share their stories with me so that it can be accounted for in the way that I craft 
the narrative um, and it helps me grow also. It just, if nothing else, it sort of shows me and reminds me what is probably obvious when, you know, when I say it out loud, but really sometimes you can get lost in your own head and forget mm. that people's perceptions can be so different. And so, so much of anything I create, whether it's a podcast or the writing now, it's just, it, it constantly involves conversations with people as a check against yeah. um, what I've crafted. Yeah. That's, um, that's really important. And we'll spend a little bit of time talking about some of your amazing, uh, you had two podcasts, which is, uh, mm-hmm. I need to lift my game, I think, and, uh, <laughs> and release another one. But uh, it's really, um, you've got some really wonderful podcast projects, and we will get into that um, a little later. Um, but how on earth, then, do we begin to collect data in schools? Because schools are incredibly complicated um incredibly um it's a people-driven business so how do we begin to measure um progress uh how do we even begin to have conversations around data in schools and ensure that it is meaningful and and useful yeah that's a really good question it's a big question and i think um you know i'd like to to answer it from the point of view of of people who are in the classroom um Because one of the sort of pet theories that I have, you know, having um, that sort of came to me as I wrote the book is that there's an element of um, what I think of as the time horizon, right? Which, which, what, and what I mean by that is depending on your job in education, you have a different time horizon for the decisions that you're trying to make. So let me make that concrete with an example. If you're somebody like me, I work at a county office of education, which in the United States is basically an agency that exists in support of a lot of schools. Yeah. And so the decisions that I'm tasked with, um, they, they come into, uh, they have a time horizon that is maybe a month and sometimes a year out. For example, uh, I might be asked to look at data and talk um, about my recommendation for how we should change programs in a year. Okay. Contrast that with somebody's in a classroom like a teacher or an instructional aide or a school psychologist or something. And uh, what practitioners like that have told me is I need to make a decision tomorrow. I'm gonna put my students in a small group and I need to figure out who's gonna go into them. And what I've learned is that the more often you've got to make decisions, the shorter the time horizon, the less formal your data has to be. And it doesn't have to be uh, that doesn't mean it's it's bad. So we give you an interesting story here is I had a, one teacher say, I don't think you should be talking to me about this. I'm not a data person. I'm like, oh, no, no, that's the, I, I would like to hear from you. Uh, and I said, so if you don't think you're a data person, then please tell me like what your, uh, your process is. And they go, well, I don't use data. And I said, well, then how do you, how do you uh, make decisions? And they said, well, I get to the end of the day, I collect up all of my exit tickets. I kind of read through them. And I just go with my gut make a decision about how I'm going to reteach tomorrow. And and my response was, well, I don't care what you call that, but from my point of view, that is a data-informed decision. You are looking at an external source of information to verify an internal theory that you had about who you want to reteach tomorrow. And just because it's not a really fancy end-of-year test score that's got a bunch of statistics in it doesn't make it not data. And so That's a long way of answering your question by saying one way that we can start to use this more is to broaden our definition of what data means, right? And I know like all the quant heads out there are probably freaking out right now because they're like, well, we can't just call anything data. I'm not suggesting that. 
But for the right purposes, uh, data can look like a lot of different things. I think if the spirit of your work is that you are constantly checking your gut and you are using data to inform your gut and you are using your gut to draw you to the right data, you mm. are using data. Yeah, that's really, um, it's really, really important. And we have, um, in, in, sorry, I'm just thinking about my classroom and my team that I run. Uh, we have obviously a summative, a formative and summative data. Uh, summative is at the end, it's sort of a diagnostic assessment mm -hmm. and formative is data that you are uh, constantly building on. It could be student reflection, mm -hmm. it could be rubrics, it could be yep. photographs. Um, would you mind maybe unpacking some of the different types um, of data that we can collect in schools and sort of the limitations and benefits of, of some of them? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'll give a little shout out to all my friends who are uh, consultants that work with with schools their uh their um plight with uh, education data is that they never have access to student level data what they have is publicly available data that's yeah. a, so what that means is that because of all of the um regulations that we have about what data can be released to people outside of the schools they can't actually look at student data because it's private so that's understandable and that's the you know as it should be and so they have publicly available data, right? So this is one kind of data that's available to anybody, parents, consultants. Um, that's the major upside to something like that, right? So you can begin to see yeah. that different data sources will give you certain, you know, certain things. It's really nice to be able to get to data whenever you want it for your job. Publicly available data is literally that's publicly available. The downside to that, of course, is that it lives at a level that gives you decision-making um, uh, over much larger groups of either students or schools or districts or in the United States, sometimes like multiple states. So would so that be, um, so, sorry to interrupt. So would that yeah, be no, uh, in terms of uh, standardized assessments, national uh -huh. data, that sort of stuff, that sort of broader data, which would yes. obviously give a very more, a very limited perspective of what's going mm -hmm. on. Is that sort of one standardized assessment across districts or counties or? Like, that's definitely one kind. Yeah. Enrollment data is another. Demographic data is yeah. another. Yeah. These are really great for like large scale research projects. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one of the points I make in the book is in a lot of ways, that is, that's not going to be that relevant for a teacher who has to make a decision about their students tomorrow, right? It's just not going to work. It's not going to give you the information you need, right? It's, to, it's just not prescriptive enough. And so, so you need other sources, right? The, the polar opposite of publicly available group data is student level data. Uh, and many times that can, you know, nowadays we have all of these online learning systems and stuff that are constantly generating data can give it, give it to us at a student level data. But even in the example of that teacher that we talked about who uses the exit slips or, or I had one teacher who says, you know what my favorite data is homework. I get all the homework back and I look at all the homework. And I look at patterns and errors. So, Ron, we've talked a little bit about sort of that broader um, uh, school and district data. What are some of the data sets that us as teachers uh, can collect uh, day to day within our classroom? And are they uh, are they as valid as some of those larger data sets? Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, there, you know, I think of this in two ways. Like, there's kind of formal levels of classroom data. Uh, you know, we were talking about this earlier, formative, that's uh, known as formative uh, assessment data, for, you know, formative testing data. It's called that uh, because it builds up 
over time and is meant to drive, uh, it's meant to help you make decisions, right? Compare that to summative data, which is like your end of year testing data, which can help you make decisions, but I think is largely there to help uh, uh, as an accountability um, sort of metric, at least in the United States, yeah. uh, end of year data is used to look at schools that have improved um, as defined by you know, these, these, these test scores. Um, at the classroom, uh, the function of the data is different, right? It's less yeah. about accountability and that type of thing and more about decisions mm-hmm. about what, what and how you're going to teach uh, your students. Yeah. So they happen more often. They're very often, just, I, I like, I'm kind of a fan of like these really, you know, grassroots style, less formal kinds of data because they come more often your exit tickets and homework, you know, quiz scores. I yeah. saw one teacher uh, or I, I heard this from one teacher. And I also read it in an article about um, folks who will take really good notes during their parent teacher conferences or their conferences yeah. with their students. And then they will, uh, collate those notes and they'll look at patterns across Mm -hmm. what students have said. If we are looking, I hope we are not looking down on that kind of data, but if we are, I should remind the audience that one of the the greatest uh, sort of researchers in uh, in the field of sort of social, emotional, and and shame and vulnerability, of course, the very well-known and famous Brene Brown, and her very approach to research is that a version of that where she's basically taking a bunch of interview data collating it and then finding patterns in it so this is a very valid way to like learn and make decisions about things yeah it's so important i mean one of the things that we're um trialing with with our data or my data in my class and also more broadly on the stages that i lead um is i i have qr codes around my classroom and so at any point my students can um get up scan their ipad and it takes you to links that it could be one for mathematics, it could be one for well-being, it could be one for English, and actually change the QR code depending on what the focus is. And this has been wonderful. I mean, one of the ones very practically that I do with my kids is I, I, I ask them, uh, I, do I feel valued in this class? Does my teacher listen to me? Do I feel, um, do I feel safe? Do I feel like I have friends? And there's a lot of, so I'm collecting a lot of this well-being data with my students. And what I get them to do is I get to score each question from zero uh, to 10, and then we can look at improvements or hopefully no, not uh, decreases in that data. But it's really wonderful because it gives us some substance for some of these things like well-being, which can be quite vague and difficult to understand. It's also interesting to see that if a student has been in trouble, they uh, score me quite poorly uh, on some of the data sets, which I think is... Uh, which is, which is really wonderful. But the conversations that I'm having, and I think some of the conversations that you, you're trying to ask us to have as educators is to take a much more broader approach uh, to what data is and also to make it a lot more user-friendly because it doesn't have to be this broad end-of-year assessment that's looking at uh, district or state trends. It can be a lot more personalised. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you're uh, familiar with the work of uh, Dr Lynn Sherratt who talks about... Um, putting faces to the data. And that has been something which has been incredibly transformative to me because it, it takes data from this sort of numerical uh, 
well, it's perceived as quite impersonal to something which is very personal and very useful. And that involves basically having photos of kids above different data sets and grouping them and talking about them and having conversations about how we're using this data. And I think your work is really wonderful because it gets to, it, it's, it's definitely made me think about how can we use this and how can we bring the entry level to data use down a little bit because I think the perception is that it's always been a hard thing to esteem to use but your, your work seems to seems to show that it is incredibly practical and incredibly useful um, yeah, it's you really, know I, really I love those examples I yeah. love those examples that you shared because you know I think they get at a uh, a point of view that you know, that I think we should be challenging, which is that it's the data that is going to make the decision for us, right? Mm -hmm. And which I think, uh, you know, I think of data as value neutral. And, you know, what yeah. I mean by that is we have to bring our values to it, our professional intuition to it. You can have the best data in the world and um, it's still not going to do anything for you. Like, I, you know, I tell the story in the book where I had this basketball coach when I was in middle school, you know, he used to tell me, he used to uh, tape record our video games and then, and then make us uh, tape record our basketball games and then make us watch the video. And he would say, the video doesn't lie. That was like his, uh, you know, his little slogan. And, um, and I hear people say that about data a lot. You know, the data doesn't lie. And my response to that is, well, that's true. It doesn't lie because it doesn't, it literally doesn't do anything. Like it's, we're the ones who who do stuff with it, right? Yeah. And I think once we have the point of view, what I hear from you when you tell the story about the QR codes, I, I don't hear somebody who is saying, oh, I found this solution that's gonna solve my problems. What I hear is somebody says, I want to know a very specific thing. I wanna know the way my students are feeling in my classroom. I wanna know how they feel. And I'm gonna use a number of tools to help me get at that. One of them is data. And that may feel like a subtle difference, but to me, that's a very big difference because you are—you already know what you want. If QR codes never existed, you would find some other way to do that. Um, it's not the QR codes in and of themselves that are solving the problem. It's your execution of the strategy that just happens to use QR codes. And that's a, a mind shift I think can be really empowering to people yeah. who are trying to figure out how to make data work for them. Yeah, we have a, as any school district would, we have a number of standardized assessments, we have a number of um, uh, rubrics that we use in class to, to help uh, gauge where our students are at. And um, I think the conversations that I'm having with educators is that uh, the, the tool that we use only tells you part of the picture. And so you have to be pulling from these different tools and have these different um, levels of assessment to build up a bigger picture. I mean, we're looking at some um, uh, uh, standardized assessment data from last year. Obviously, during COVID, we, we couldn't do our national assessment, which is a big deal. Um, and the argument that I was trying to come up against was that while this is really important, this data, it only tells us part of the picture. It needs to complement the other types of data that we're collecting. And that could be formative assessments, that could be uh, work samples from students, it could be diagnostic assessments. So we're constantly trying to build this picture of what our students can do and also where to next. And it was really, uh, it's been really lovely to see teachers' perceptions shift from, uh, at least in my context, from data being this thing we do at the end of the term or end of the year to something that we are constantly doing. And 
as educators, we are constantly making these judgments, these decisions on about how we group kids flexibly and the types of questions we give them feedback. And, and so I think it, it's nice to see that people are, maybe data's PR problem is sort of getting resolved a little bit and people are starting to see it's a bit useful. Do you think, would you think that's a bit of your mission in life is to get people to start to see themselves as uh, data enthusiasts or data analysts? Yeah, I, you know, I think like, Yes, in 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 a lot of ways, yes. I think there's a there's a little bit of a uh, you know the pro the writing about data in schools is uh, is one expression of something that uh, you know I feel pretty strongly about, which is um, as educators we don't always have language for for what this experience is like, right? And broadly speaking, data I think is a really great example of that because. Um, all we're given is the just the language that we sort of walk into. Like I had one teacher say like, oh yeah, you know what it was like for me is um, I graduated from school. I started my first job as a teacher and I was asked to use data and that was pretty much it. And so that's the, uh, we have these really like broad stroke stories about data and experiences in general as educators, but then there are things that happen all the time you don't, don't always have language for. And that is sort of what I feel like is, is my mission and my work, at least as I understand it right now, is to bring some language to these stories that are just difficult to detect, but we all feel them. Like, I, you know, I, I'll give you one example, because I know that's abstract, but like a you know, concrete example of that is, um, is there was a, a teacher who, who told me a story about how afraid and stressful she was to share her data when she was asked to at a meeting. And the way that she described that reminded me of what it was like when I was younger. I was, my, my parents made me take piano recitals, right? And like, or take piano lessons and I would have to do these piano recitals. And it's hard to describe just how vulnerable an act it is to get in front of a bunch of adults as a young child and 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 give them or show them something that you created right and it's it's just a vulnerable act there's no way to get around it and and that is language that fits to me the stories of many teachers who are saying like it's really hard because the data is the product of my work it's like sharing an essay or a poem or writing a song and then having other people look at it and tell you what's wrong with it. And that's an example of, we don't talk about, in my experience anyway, we don't talk about that that much. You know, we, in fact, many times that I see is we talk about it the opposite way. We need to get ahead of our emotions and data is the solution for that. I don't see it like that anymore. Data is very much an emotional thing. We need language for that. Yeah, I think that's really important. And it got me thinking as well about how much responsibility teachers take for the learning outcomes of their students which is which is really important but but it's also a continuation of uh their years of schooling so I think we also need to look at what has happened before and it's not about shifting blame and saying well you're the educator you need to fix it this has been a um a continuation of what has happened in previous years this has been influenced by lifestyle by um, by student learning choices, by self-perception, by self-efficacy. And I think if we can have those conversations about data, which can be quite confronting, but if we can do it in a way that is supportive and provides us a way to move forward without blaming, I think is, 
is really important. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? How do we begin to have these conversations about data and not sort of personally attack each other for the yeah. for our student outcomes or that lack thereof? Yeah, you know, I think the answer to that question lies in the other ways in that we've already done that, both in education or in other kinds of work or in our home and family lives, which is if we want to be able to talk more frequently about something that we find is difficult to talk about, we create norms, either formal or unspoken, that make it safe to do that. Um, The opposite of that is to have a culture where the only time data is talked about is when we're quote unquote in trouble and the data is the proof of it. Um, Data has that role. I understand that. But if that is the only time we use it, understandably, people have some very negative feelings about it. Um, And so we have to make it safe. I would go as far as saying, and I recommend this in the book, make norms that say like, hey, this isn't like, we're not, you know, in the room where you meet and talk about data, we're not here to blame each other. We're here to learn from evidence, right? I heard, and, you know, I'm very interested in data science. I sort of have, you know, I do some data science work. And uh, there is a process in this in the uh, software industry and data science industry called the blameless postmortem. What is the blameless postmortem, and what on earth can we do with that? Okay, blameless postmortem is a process by which a group of people go back and they review something that happened. Is usually something that didn't go their way. So, for example, they didn't meet their project goal or something like that. Yeah. And they analyze all of the things that happened and the decisions that led up to that outcome. The essential part of the blameless postmortem is the blameless part of it, which means that there is a norm where no individual person gets blamed. It's my understanding of it is it's a way to create a safety required from a meeting like that. Yeah. that uh, to get people to say like, oh, wow, we can really learn from this and people aren't getting defensive. Yeah. Um, it's an example, I think, of like, if you want to make a place safer, you, you got to create some norms that support safety. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that idea of taking the, um, and we talked a lot about personalizing data, which is really important, but we're also taking the personal or the, or the, the, the blaming out of results, which I think is really important. And to have those conversations and make data analysis both part of what we do every day, um, and, and also something which is which is a safe environment, creating a safe environment to do so, which I think is super important. And do you think that's something that schools um, tend to get wrong? Do you think there is a lot of blaming around data, or do you think we need to shift the narrative slightly to to creating those safe spaces? Yeah, it's really hard to answer that broadly for all schools because you know you see all kinds of different experiences. Um, and there's, there's definitely no shortage of, shortage of situations where educators feel like um, data is either underused or used solely you know, for, for punishment. And I think in those situations, I think it makes a ton of sense to sit down and have a look at that for the, for the purposes of improving the experience of you know, yeah. students. It's always yeah. gotta be about that. On the other hand, I've seen other places where it's like, boy, they really have a system going that feels safe, productive, yeah. uh, reflective, and all the good things. Uh, I, okay, Ryan. So you've got me. You've really got me thinking. Like you talked a lot about um, yourself as a data scientist and data analyst, and some of the access that you get more broadly to data and seeing those long-term trends. How do we 
bridge that gap? Like, how do I get some of my useful day-to-day data from my classroom? Um, and how do I couple that with some of those larger data sets? Because there seems to be a bit of a mismatch here. Um, you want to access what we have, but you can't for privacy reasons. And uh, how do we begin to sort of bridge that gap? Yeah, you know, one thing I think that practitioners can do is look at these bigger data sets as a point of comparison, right? Like data analysis is uh, any single data point really doesn't mean a ton until you can compare it to some other things. And I don't mean compare in a way that brings shame on anybody, but just for context. So for example, um, you know, uh, I'm... Five four, which I think is like your sort of like lower below average height, right? But we only know that because the surrounding context. When I go hang out with my friends, clearly, like you know, many of them are taller than me. Most of them are. If, on the other hand, the context was such that uh, most people were five four, well, that just completely changes the interpretation wow. of that, wow. right? And so, so I think one thing that practitioners can do is they can look at their test data, their formative test data. And then, and then, you know, they can do some reflection on ways that they can improve sort of internally, like within their classroom. But then they might also ask the question, huh, I wonder how uh, I'm doing or how our classroom is doing in comparison to some larger group, the whole school or the whole school district, for example. Um, and so that's, you know, that's one way that you can do it. I think on the other end of the spectrum for the data scientists, or, you know, the sort of data folks at like the district office who are dealing with like the big data sets. My focus for them to make this connection is largely around language and empathy and uh, patience and creativity. These kind of like, you know, so-called, I don't like this term, but it's what people say, the so-called soft skills, right? These kind of immeasurable things because I think it's so easy to not take the time if you're somebody who works with these humongous data sets to really understand the point of connection between a high level analysis like that and somebody who was trying to make a very practical decision for their students. And it takes some work and relationship building um, and co-design to figure out where the point is. But boy, when you can figure that out, it's powerful. Yeah, look, it, it, it's so important and your um, work has raised so many questions for me and it's really helped me redefine the way that I think about the purpose of data and the use of data. And it's also taken it from, um, taken data from something which is, has seemed for many years to me to be quite abstract and not, not necessarily relevant in so many ways to something that I feel like I can use um, every day and all of a sudden all of those anecdotal notes that I've taken all of those um, observations and rubrics and videos and QR check-ins and all of those things I've started to really place um, a lot more value on those um, than I had before I read your work so I I'm so grateful for that and thank you for um, shifting the narrative around data from being something which is sort of perceived as quite scary and terrifying and standardized to something which is um, a, a bit more um, a, a bit more personal. You know, I was a school psychologist uh, here in the United States. And like what that means, at least during the time, you know, that I, I think it's changed now, but during the time that I did it is we did a lot of 
tests and stuff to identify learning disabilities with students. And then we would have to share the results of those tests with um, parents and other school staff so that we can learn from that the best ways that we can you know, help, help students. And uh, I'm not proud of this, but what I began to notice is how bored people were with my presentation of these <laughs> tests. And on some occasions, uh, they would fall asleep. Like I would literally see, I would sort of see like, oh wow, that person is like transfixed by my uh, presentation. And then I would look closer, I put my glasses on and realize, oh, they're not transfixed. They're literally asleep. <laughs> they're drooling. And you go, hang on a second. Then totally. Yeah, wow. It's happened multiple times. So I've had a lot of time to reflect on why that is. Uh, and one of the things that I realized came to me when I started to, to study data science more and started to develop a very specific method of data analysis. Um, and you know what you're kind of pointing to, towards there in your question is that what I discovered is uh, when I present my findings to somebody, I've discovered that I have to present it in the same steps that I use to draw the conclusions, but in reverse order. So I'm going to make that concrete by saying oh, it like this. That's great. When I do the analysis, I collect a bunch of data. I give a bunch of tests. And then I look at literally every test result, every data point. I look at every single one, one by one. And then I draw themes and I see the patterns. And then I tell a story about the pattern. All right. That's that the story is the conclusion. So that's what data analysis looks like. Now, imagine what it would be like uh, if... I went to people who were like parents and teachers, you know, not data analysts, and I presented it to them in that same order. I went through every single data point, every test, and then I told them what the themes were, and then I drew my conclusion. When really what they want is the conclusion. That's what they want. And so it's a little bit like uh, giving a, you know, inviting somebody over for dinner and then surprising them and, and letting them know, like, actually, I have a sales pitch for my side business for you. And then we get to eat dinner. Like, it's that kind of feeling, you know? Yeah. yeah so cool. So to, so to, to really help people understand, I found I need to do the reverse of that. I start with a conclusion in a story and I make it about the kid because we're all there for the kid. And so, so I'll tell a story like when I saw Maria, let me show you how she answered this question. Doesn't that sound just like her? And that's a great way to get everybody in to say like, oh, we're talking about Maria. Like, boy, we, you know, this is what this is about. Mm -hmm. Then I walk that a step backwards and I say like, here's what I think is happening. And I talk about the theme that I'm seeing in the data. And then just to give a little bit of rigor, demonstrate a little bit of rigor, I give a couple of data points, not all of them, just like just one or two. And, and then you've got people engaged. Wow. So story the themes and what it means and a couple of scientific data points to show them that you actually did the work and you're not making it up and you're much better off. Yeah, that that's so important, Ryan. And it comes back to our, the discussion we had right at the beginning uh, of our interview and talking about cognitive bias. Like I think I have been guilty of um, having an assumption, say for example, about a particular child or how they learn, selectively finding the bits of data that support my assumption and then reinforcing that assumption at the end where we actually need to take a much different a much more different approach and think about okay what am I missing here and I love the idea that you can um, 
that conversation, let's go back to Maria, I don't know if she's fictional or not, but the conversation about Maria, okay, we all know Maria, we've, we've, we've talked with her, we know what she, we know what she's like as a learner, and these are some of the things that I've noticed, and, and I love, I love that, I love that it's so personal, and so, um, uh, so, so engaging, and did you, did you notice people stopped falling asleep when you, when you did that? Well, sad. Sadly, no. sadly for me, sadly for me, uh, you know, I didn't really discover the lesson of that until later on in my career. And I've often wondered like, oh, I wonder if like if I gave, you know, school psychology another shot, if I, you know, how successful I would be in, you know, to, in kind of bringing people into the story. But I do deliver a lot of data analysis to people. And, it, and this is the method I use exclusively well there might be one situation where i don't use that and it is it's if my audience are entirely data scientists maybe i won't use it then but even then i still i i just would rather bring the humanity to the conversation and lead with that and i do notice that um particularly for people who who are not you know i think of somebody i think of myself as somebody who for whom the data analysis can be the reward in and of itself for most educators the reward um, is the students. That is the reward for me, but I get like two rewards. I get to do the data analysis, which is fun. And then for the students, for most folks, it's just the students and the data analysis is just the tool. Yeah. For folks like that, I really find that they'll come to me after the talk and they'll be like, wow, that is the first time I've heard anybody talk about data that way. And to which I say like, I'm so sorry that that is the first time. Now you get to go do it. And you know, you won't have to be the only one. Wow. Well, Ryan, that it's, it's so wonderful to to see you know and to hear about and i um, i'd love at some point i can get over to the states to have a uh, to come and listen to how you present i think it would sound wonderful and um i just wish someone had written a book like your book and i had read it years ago because i always i, I view myself as a um i didn't view myself as a mathematician math was particularly terrifying for me I didn't view myself as someone who knew how to engage uh, in data. And it's so lovely to see your work in um, creating it, creating a space that's accessible for everybody. Um, and also to make it so, um, to make it so useful and user-friendly. And, and I'm so, um, I'm so grateful for your work. It's really, it's really lovely to, uh, um, I was really privileged to, to get a, uh, an advanced copy of your work a little while ago and to read through it. And, and for those people that would like to get a copy of your book, um, it's not released yet. Is that correct? It's on the 22nd of March, I believe. That's right. The 22nd of March. It is available for pre-order. Okay. Um, so yeah, so you could do that now. Um, I have a website, uh, ryanestrayado.com. Uh, and on that website, I invite people to, um, to sign up for my email news list community. Um, and if you do that, you get a free chapter of the book and a 20% uh, discount code to order it. Um, and so it's coming soon. Like, I'm really excited about it. I got my early copies uh, last week and, uh, and they look great. I'm so happy with how it turned out. Amazing. And can, is it a, a physical copy or can people order an electronic copy or uh, what's You can do that too. Yep. It's in a paperback or you can get it on Kindle. Oh, that, Ryan, that is amazing. We'll put all of those details, including the, the newsletter sign up and the 20% the, the off uh, in the show notes. But um, can I just say thank you for your time? I know that the uh, Australian US time zone is a bit of a nightmare to try and organize, but I'm, I'm so incredibly grateful that you would not only take the time to, uh, to write this book, but also take the time to, to talk with me today. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it.
Oh, you're so welcome. And thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed just being here and hanging out and talking and, uh, and just having conversations with you. I love the podcast. I love your work ethic and what you're trying to do. I really, uh, I really admire it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Ryan. We will uh, stay in touch and hopefully we can do a round two at some point. I would love that. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks a lot. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. I've one favour to ask. If you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time.